here. I know it's a little late. This feels like we should have said that a week ago. We didn't have service a week ago, so we're saying it now. So happy New Year, and uh, I'm really glad you're all here. And um, we're starting a new series today, and you'll see it's called the Movement. And if you'd like, you can follow along. We've got a listening guide, a little piece of paper in here, and got a few blanks. Fill in the blanks if you'd like. There should be a pen there in front of you on the chair. But I don't know what comes to your mind or what you feel. It might be more of an emotion. So what, what comes to your mind or what do you feel when you hear the word church? You don't need to answer, but just think about what is it that I, when I think of the word or hear the word church, what comes to my mind? My hunch is that to one degree or another, it's probably a pretty far cry from what was perceived when, when the church was introduced in the very first century. Our idea of church and their idea of church is probably two different things because a lot of time has lapsed. A lot of things have happened in the, in the way that church is done that have in some ways taken church in, in somewhat of a different direction. So what I want to do is look at what the church was meant to be. Because from the very beginning, there was no building, there was no instruments, there was not a band, there was not um, bulletins and connection cards, uh, announcements. There wasn't even Bibles at that point when the first church began. The church began as a movement. And that's the first thing you'll see up here is the church began as a movement and it centered around one event, the resurrection of Jesus. And so as the church began in this move out, some amazing things happened in that early movement known as the church. Um, And what brought this really diverse group of people together for this movement is, is the simple belief that Jesus was exactly who he had claimed that he was. He, he, was, he had talked about his life and some things that would happen, and this movement sparked around the resurrection, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He talked about the fact that he would do that, and he actually did that. So he was exactly who he claimed to be. And so my goal for this morning is for us to reconsider our thinking about church. I want us to rethink this idea of what we're doing when we gather together as the church. Because the church launched, not as a location, but as a movement that was intended to move out into every part of the world. This was intended to, to push out, to reach out. In the, in the Bible, the Bible is divided up into two sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The second part is known as the New Testament, and it originally was written in the Greek. And so in the Greek New Testament... The little word translated church is a translation of this word ecclesia. You see it in your listening guide there. And so the word ecclesia, it literally means an assembly or a congregation. That's the Greek word for church, ecclesia. An assembly, a congregation, or a gathering. When Jesus launched the church, he launched it as a gathering of people centered around a mission. This was a certain... And then something terrible happened in history. It was launched as as a gathering, as an assembly, as a congregation. And as time went on, people's understanding of what the church was, it shifted away from that original understanding of the church, the ecclesia being a gathering and assembly. It became more about the location. It shifted from the movement into the location. And so it became more about the organization and about hierarchy, something emerged that was so foreign that the first group of believers, after within a few hundred years, they would have had a really hard time recognizing, what is this thing that's happening? Because that's not what we, 
what was birthed in the very first century. Over time, people began to lose sight of what the church was and what the word ecclesia was all about. They lost sight of it. Within just 300 years, the church had lost sight of its purpose. And one of those reasons is because the word ecclesia was redefined to a different word. And so it was translated to, when they, when they began to translate the Bibles, the word that they used for church became this word, kirch. It's a German word. I'm not saying that right because I don't speak German. I'm not going to try either. But, but this is where we get our English word church. You can see the, word, the English word church in that German. So it's derived from that. But in 300 AD, this word kirch, or whatever, in a very broad sense, it meant the Lord's house. That's what that word meant. The Lord's house. And so, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but the problem is, there's really no relationship at all between the idea of ecclesia and this word. Whatever, however you say it. Kirch, we'll just call it. Between, there's, not, there's not a relationship between the idea of a missional congregation, an assembly, a gathering, and then the building, the location where the actual congregation meets. There's, these are two different ideas. And so out of this wrong understanding came all kinds of practices that took the church further and further away from where they were meant to be. And you see, once the church had to do with this location and this building, once the church was about the building, then whoever controlled the building controlled the church. And whoever controlled the building also would control the Scriptures. They had control of the, of the Scriptures. And whoever controlled the building and the Scriptures also controlled the people. And when you walk into the Middle Ages, you find out that when they controlled the building, the people, the Scriptures, they often controlled the government as well. And so there was this, all of a sudden, this movement that was intended to spread the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That was the movement. That was what it was about. All of a sudden, it became a very insider-focused group. A very insider-focused group ritualistic, and even in some places, immoral group of people that was a far cry from what the church was intended to be. And it is why, for these reasons, it's why some people even today have turned their back on the church because of some of the horrific things that have come through church history. Thankfully, though, there have been people, there's always been movements, and there's always been people who've stood up against these different ideas. Some people have said, something's wrong here, we're off course. We need to correct course. One of those guys was the name, a man named William Tyndale. You'll see a picture of him here. It's not smiling, but and there's a reason why he wasn't smiling. He was a graduate of Oxford and Cambridge, and he, he was a linguistic scholar. He studied languages, linguistic scholar in England, and he decided it was time for the average person to have access to the Bible. He decided... The church, which at that point, again, they controlled the building, the people, the scriptures. There was ties into the government. He decided it's time for the average person to have access to the scriptures, that they would know and be able to learn what God has said to us. At that point, there was not a single complete English Bible translated from the original Greek and Hebrew. There wasn't anybody that had done that. And the few translations that that were in English were out were passages in English, and they were translated from Latin, not from Greek or Hebrew, and so they weren't accurate translations. But even those inaccurate translations from Latin, those were intentionally kept away from the average churchgoer. They didn't have access to it. That was something the church controlled. So in order to get the Scripture, you had to listen to someone 
share it. You had to listen to what the church had to say. Only the person who controlled the building controlled the Scriptures. And Tyndale, he, he looked at the situation and he said, enough of this. The people, average people, need access to the Word of God. And so he decided to start translating from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. Here's a copy of the 1536 Tyndale Bible. This is just a leaf from the Bible that made him an outlaw. This guy became an outlaw because he translated the Bible. There's worse crimes, right? You know, some people get in trouble for all sorts of things. He got in trouble for translating the Bible. Now, again, how did the church get that far off track that, that this became illegal? He was an outlaw. He had to flee to Germany. He had to leave his country, flee to Germany. And thanks to the development of the printing press, which had happened 100 years before, he had English Bibles that he had translated, printed over and over, and he had them smuggled back into England. And so, suddenly, the average person in England, with no power, no authority, was able to hold the Bible in their hands, a Bible that they could actually understand. It wouldn't be something that we would understand, because if you got up close to that leaflet, you'd have a hard time um, following it, because the English is very different than our English. But it is, it is English. And um, it's just an old version of English, we'll say. And, but the, the Word was out. The Bible was available to average people. People like you and me could have a copy. It was expensive, but people could have access to the Bible. After a short time, Tyndale, he was betrayed by a friend and, and brought back to England. And he was put on trial as a heretic, which means like a false teacher. He was put on trial, and you'll see a picture here of him on trial. They hung him. They burned his body. The church, the government, tied it together as one. They hung him, they burned his body, and they discarded him. But it was too late. The English-speaking people had a copy of the Bible. This is an amazing thing that had happened. The institutional church over this time began to now lose power because the average person could read the Bible for themselves. They could get into it and study it for themselves to see what it had to say. And during his trial, here's this famous quote from, from Tyndale. He said this, if God, They told him, to recant. Well, spare your life if you'll recant. He said, If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Scriptures than thou dost. He said this to the religious leaders of his day. He's, telling, he's shouting this at the religious leaders and he's accusing them of controlling the building, of controlling the people. And not surprisingly, when you look at the Tyndale Bible, this 1536 Bible, and you get to the place where he talks about ecclesia, where he translates from Greek. He doesn't put church. Instead, he puts congregation. He takes it back to what the word actually meant because the church was launched as a movement. It was launched as a gathering, as an assembly of people around this mission. This was his attempt to return the church back to the simplicity of what it was meant to be, a gathering of people who would order their lives around the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, he gathers his followers together, and he, and he asks them a simple question. He asks them, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they had different answers. They said, some people think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, Jeremiah, and then he, he turns to them and he says, but who do you say I am? And we get this response here in Matthew 16, 16. We read, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a huge statement. He's saying, You're God's Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who we think you are. And Jesus replied to him and said, 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Simon bar Jonah means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, God, turn the lights on. You, you're, you see things clearly, because that's who I am, he's saying. And then he says this, and I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter was going to be one of the leaders in the church. But he says, on this rock, I will build my church. That's the word ekklesia, that Greek word. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's saying, I will build, not a building, not a location, not a meeting place. I'm not going to start building churches. He says, I'm going to build a gathering that cannot be extinguished. He says, the movement of the church, the gates of hell or death itself cannot stop it. People may die. In fact, people will die for the sake of advancing this message. But even death itself, he's saying, cannot stop the church from going on forever and ever and ever. This move is going to spread out. It's going to reach out. And soon after he spoke these words to Peter, Jesus was crucified. If you know the story, he was crucified, he was buried, he was put in a tomb. Three days later, he was resurrected. He came back in bodily form. He showed himself in the flesh to people. And they're like, he's come back alive. It wasn't a ghost. It was, it was him. It was Jesus. He had resurrected. And after that, he spent 40 days with his followers, gathering them together and talking about their final instructions before he, he ascends into heaven. And in the beginning of the book of Acts, which is the book we're going to look at in this series, Luke, the author of Acts, he shares a little bit more about the instructions that Jesus gave. These are Jesus' departing words. Okay? He's about to he's moments from ascending into heaven, and he gives these instructions to the followers of to his followers. On this hillside he says this. So they ask, when they come together, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're wanting to they're wanting to know because in their mind they think Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom. He's come back from the dead. He's about to kick some tail. And they're like, are we going to set up shop here in Jerusalem? Because we want to be part of the militia. We're going to take over. When is this kingdom? He's thinking, they're thinking very natural. They're thinking that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom right then and there. And they, they're his closest followers. Of course, they're going to be big players. And then he says to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, for the Father is fixed by his own authority. But then he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now this, I think, is what they're really looking for. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And they're thinking, yes, power sounds good. We're going to be in charge. We're going to be powerful people. What are we going to get to do? What are you... And they're probably thinking, what do we get to do with all this power? And then he tells them, the power is for, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this word he uses, witness. He says, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You'll receive power to be my witnesses. This word witness, it means like a witness in court. The witness is someone who will accurately represent. They'll accurately represent what they saw and what they heard. That's what a witness does. If you've ever seen a crime and you were a witness, you just say, here's what I saw. Here's the facts. You're not adding interpretation. Well, I think he did this because of this. He looked like he was angry, but... They don't want to know all that. They just want to know, what did you see? What did you hear? And that's the role that Jesus is saying that the followers of Christ would have, to be witnesses. In Jerusalem, which is the, the place where they were, the city where they were at that point. And then he says, in Judea, which is kind of the broader area. And then he says, Samaria, which was an area that they didn't even like to go into culturally. They avoided Samaria. They went around it intentionally. 
And he says, and to the end of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to represent accurately what you saw me do and what you saw, what you heard me say. That's their job is to spread the message and ministry of Jesus throughout that area and then pushing out. And they probably thought, well, we can do that. We can handle that. We can handle Jerusalem. You know, we know Jerusalem. And then they thought, Judea, okay, maybe we can do that. Samaria, they probably weren't on board with that because that was like saying you're going to a place that you just did not, you culturally stayed away from. Culturally, you didn't cross certain lines, you didn't go into certain towns. That was Samaria for, the, for these people. They did not mix well with the Samaritans. And so they're thinking, no, we're not going to do that. Are you kidding? And then he says, and to the end of the earth, which they had no concept. All they probably understood was maybe the Mediterranean, possibly some of but they not likely had traveled much through the Roman world. And so this is, are you kidding? Wow. But that's exactly what happened. This move, it pushed out. Our being here this morning is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. It's a fulfillment of what he prophesied would happen. That there would be witnesses taking the message out. You're sitting here to fulfillment, partial fulfillment of that calling on that small gathering of people. And then after Jesus said that, it says he departed. He ascended up into heaven. A cloud hit him from their sight. And they're looking there like, what just happened? You know, first he died, rose. Now he's back. Now he's gone. And they're looking up into heaven. These angels come and they tell him, you know, men of Galilee, don't just stay here staring at, you know, go do what Jesus said. They're reminded, oh yeah, Jesus told us to go back, you know, go in Jerusalem, start praying. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so this group, about 120 people, his disciples and his close, his, some of his family members, and about 100 other people, they head into this house and they begin to pray together and pray together. And two weeks later, something amazing happened. It was during Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival, Jewish festival that brought Jews to Jerusalem from who, who had spread out all around the Roman world. Some of them had spread out by choice, Probably most of them spread out because there was points in history where the Jews were kicked out of their land. They were sent and exiled to different regions. So they were coming back to celebrate this holy day and this season, to celebrate this feast together. And while the 120 were meeting together and praying on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up just like Jesus told them. And this band of followers were empowered and they were filled by the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had said when He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit comes in in this amazing way. And they were given the ability to speak different languages. And all the people that were around heard all of this noise in this house. And they, people come and they're like, what's going on? It's just confusing. It's exciting. And they're trying to make, people are trying to make sense of it. And here's the followers of, of Christ speaking these different languages. And everyone's thinking, and these guys are drunk. It's really early in the morning. These guys are babbling. But then... All these people who are on the outside listening in and, and hearing and seeing what's going on, they say, wait, wait I, I recognize that language. The Holy Spirit had empowered the believers to speak these known languages from all the region. So all these people that had came from the different parts of the Roman world, they were hearing the message and the hope of God. They were hearing about the wonders of God in their midst, but in their own language. And so they're like, wait a second, how is it that these Galileans have been empowered to speak my language and to tell me about the wonders of God in my language. And there's all this excitement and confusion. Some people still think they're drunk. And then Peter, 
the leader of the church at that point, he decides that this is the moment for the very first sermon to be preached to the multitudes. And so he gets up, there's Peter, and he preaches the very first sermon on opening day of the church. This is day one, opening day. And he says, these guys aren't drunk. And he draws their attention to a passage in the Old Testament that they would have all been familiar with about how God would pour His Spirit out on all people. And, and he, he begins to clarify a passage to them. He says, this is what we're seeing right now. And I want to draw your attention to Acts 2, verse 22. He begins to preach to them and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He's saying, you guys know what Jesus did. You've heard the stories, I'm sure. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now he's getting personal. Peter's not giving a a feel-good message at this point. He's being very personal and direct. Don't forget, this event Peter's recalling is just less than two months after after the crucifixion. This is recent history. Many of these people, particularly those who lived in and around Jerusalem and Galilee, had, had they'd seen Jesus heal someone. Maybe they knew someone, someone close to them that had interacted with Jesus, had heard Jesus speak or heal someone. At the very least, there was recognition of Jesus. Then, verse 24, Peter continues, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. That just means freeing him from the agony of death. Death wasn't going to be the end for Jesus because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death couldn't hold him down. Creatures... Peter's preaching just the gospel. He's preaching what happened in Jesus' life. And then later on in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, meaning God raised Jesus back to life, real life. And of that, we are all witnesses. He's claiming we saw this with our own eyes. He's doing what Jesus told him to do. Be my witnesses. He's, they're, they're obeying what Jesus told him to do. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, which means Jesus is now with God, and having promised, or I'm sorry, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's saying, this, this excitement, what has just happened is all from God. You're seeing it, you're hearing it. This is all from God. These followers of Jesus were not, they weren't witnesses to a teaching. They were witnesses to a person. You see, Christianity was not and is not about embracing a teaching. It's about embracing a person, Jesus Christ, and an event in history that He rose from the dead. Peter's saying, we're witnesses to the fact that Jesus died. He was buried and He rose again. Not 200 years ago, not even 20 years ago, but less than two months ago. This just happened, he's saying. And in verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel, now this is getting heated, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, he's saying, listen up. If you're Jewish, listen up. You all need to know, he's saying, that God has made you, I'm sorry, that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is both, He's God. He is God. Jesus is God. And then they, He tags this on the end, whom you crucified. You just crucified God. Now again, this is personal. And He's saying, you had your hands in this. You took part in this. Some of you were there. Some of you accused Him and walked away. Verse 37 Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They're they're cut to the heart, meaning, man, the message had penetrated them inside. Have you ever been at the point where God gets your attention? 
He breaks through all the cloudiness, and you're like, wow, it's like God's speaking right to me right now. This is what has happened at this point. God's got their attention, and He's dealing directly with them. And how do you think Peter replies when they say, brothers, what should we do? You know, he says, attend church regularly. Or, build a building. That's what we should do. We should build a building. And then we'll build a bigger building. We're going to invite people to come to it. Then we're going to build a bigger building. And then we're going to tell people, attend church regularly. Remember, this is opening day of the church. When we think about the word church, we often think about, I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to go to the location. Because that influence of that change in linguistics has impacted the way we understand what the church is all about. But back then on opening day, their idea wouldn't... The idea of a location, if Peter said, let's all attend church, they, they wouldn't have had a concept of what that really meant. Instead, when they said, what shall we do? Peter continues and says, repent. This is his response. He doesn't say attend church or build a building. He says, repent. Which means change. It means a, a repentance is change of mind that leads to a change of life. Changing my mind that leads to real life change. He says, turn around. Stop doing life the way you've been doing life. Repent. Turn towards God and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, our faith is what saves us. The decision to turn around towards God, accepting Him into our lives, inviting Jesus to come into our lives. Baptism is an outward expression of something that has happened internally. Our faith is what saves us. Not baptism, but baptism is an expression of a, a genuine faith. And so he's saying, turn around and then be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then here's God's promise. He says, here's the promise, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's God Himself, the third member of the Trinity. He is going to take up residence within you. He's saying, you can have, you can connect with God. Verse 39. I don't want you to miss this verse. This is really a key verse for what we're looking at this morning. For this promise, he says, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now let me ask you something. Who is Peter referring to when he says this? All who are far off. The promise is for you, your children, and all who are far off. You know who all who are far off are? That's me. That's you. That's our children. He's saying this message is to go out. It's to push out. This is Peter's way of saying this is not a Jewish thing. This isn't a Jerusalem thing. This isn't a first century thing or an us thing. This is, this is going to go out. This movement's message is for all who are far off. This is the point. This, the movement that we're a part of this morning, the message of this movement is for all who are far off. It's not for this insider club where we all you know, just huddle together. But this is for those who are far off geographically, chronologically. This is a multi-generational, multicultural message. This is for people who've never been born yet, for people who live in places we've never even heard of. This is a movement for all. And then after that, the people responded. So much energy, so much passion and excitement for what just happened. Look at what, what the response is. We're told in verse 41, So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people respond to this message on opening day. 3,000 people join the movement. Can you imagine how long it must have taken to baptize 
thousand people. Try doing this three thousand times. I mean, they probably like. I'm going to baptize you. Now you're going to help help me baptize. Now you baptize someone. Now you baptize. And I mean, I'm sure if they thought about it, they probably figured out a way to pull it off. But man, this was like first century workout, and this was this was an exciting thing. But the movement just exploded on day one. This is opening day, and it blew up. Now you may be uncomfortable with that. I like knowing everybody. I remember when we started the church. It was in my living room. And I, I knew everybody. It was easy to know everybody because there wasn't that many of us. And you know, I knew everybody. I knew everyone's kids. I knew I could celebrate everyone's birthday. They could celebrate mine. I knew the high points in everyone's life. You know, when there was news, everyone knew about everything. And so this idea may make us feel really uncomfortable with a movement that, that blows up. And it's not containable or controllable by us. Because from the very beginning, the church was a growing movement that intentionally reached out. Why is that? Why did it? It's not because Jesus is trying to create and build mega churches. Jesus is not trying to do that. But it's because the movement is not an insider thing. It's not about just forming this little tight band of people that nobody else can break into. As soon as we turn and we think like that, then it, it, it gets killed. <laughs> we, we, we put out the possibility of being a part of what God is trying to do. As soon as we hunker down and focus just on us and making it an insider thing, it keeps reaching out. How would you respond to a move of God like that in our midst? Thousands of people saying, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe this message, and we repent of our sins, we want to be included in this gathering. We want to be a part of this movement. From the very beginning, that's how the church was. It started as this big, missional kingdom community committed to bearing the message of Jesus. Do you know what connects Christians or followers of Christ all over the world? It's not that we sing the same songs or worship the same way or speak the same language. We don't. We don't do those things. The one thing we have in common with all people throughout history who follow Christ is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And His death paid for my sins, for your sins. And His resurrection gives us the power and the hope for new life. If you want a new life, that's what, we, that's what this is all about. If you want to start over a fresh start, it's, it's found in Him. That's what unites the church, the mission. You see, it was never about a location. The church was never about a location. It's always been about this movement. And the movement just keeps moving out really quickly. Even in the darkest times, even in times where church history was really dark, and we look and we say, oh my gosh, this happened in the church? We look what happened in the Crusades and we read, even in the darkest times, there's always been people who said this message needs to get to the people. There have always been people like William Tyndale who said, I'm willing to give up my life so that the average common person can connect with God. So they don't have to jump through the hurdles, so they can just connect with God. That's why, and this is in us. This is in our DNA. This is why when someone comes to know Christ, man, we get excited. That's why when someone gets baptized, we cheer and we clap because we're seeing God at work in people's lives and we get to be part of it. When, we, when, people, when common people like you and I say, wow, I want to be part of that movement, man, it fires us up. 
I don't know what your idea of church was when you arrived here in this morning. You may not be a church person, but I hope that as a result of this morning, your idea, your picture of church might have somewhat been enlarged because God wants us to get a hold of what He's trying to do through it, through the church. Did you know that more people have come to know Jesus Christ since World War II than have come to Christ, all people that have come to Christ throughout all centuries of Christianity combined? That means a lot of people are becoming Christians. There's just this, the movement is actually growing more and more. What Jesus said would happen is happening right now. 3,500 new churches, new gatherings of Christ followers are sprouting up every week in Africa, Asia, and in Latin America alone. 3,500 new gatherings every week in those three regions. That's 182,000 new churches per year. You know that every 24 hours, 174,000 people give their lives to Jesus? I could go on and on about how this movement is just moving and moving and moving with or without us it is on the move i mean that's that's exciting the question then for a church like ours for an ecclesia a gathering that gathers together in this building is will we embrace our resurrected savior's call to take this message out or will we just hunker down and focus on us and become about inciting insider an insider group Will we, will we embrace the message and be witnesses of the message and ministry of Jesus? Because the reason that all of us are here this morning is that someone else was courageous enough to not make it about themselves. But they pushed out. Now, that's exciting. That's what I want to give my life to. As you go out from here this morning, I'd like you to consider taking a number of steps. The first one, you don't see it on your connection card, but before we get to ones that are up on your connection card, maybe you've never come to the point where you've embraced the message of Jesus for yourself. But this morning, you you would say, you know what, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that His death paid for my sins, and that His resurrection, man, I want that hope for a new life. I want to start fresh today. Or maybe you're just like, you know, I want to know how to make that connection with God. I'd like to learn how to begin a relationship with Christ. On the back, if you flip over this connection card that you have, on the back it says, send me info about. And the top right, it just says, begin a relationship with Jesus for the first time. I encourage you to check that. If you've never nailed down your personal relationship with Jesus, if you checked out, we'll send you some information. Love to have a conversation with you about that. For the rest of you, here's a few next steps I'd like to suggest. First is to read Acts 1-4. through 4. I'd like to invite Cody and the band to make your way forward as well. And if you take out that connection card on the back left, you'll see these different next steps. You might consider taking one of these in response to the message this morning. One would be read Acts 1-4. through 4. Read Acts 1-4. through 4. You'll see there's this little bookmark, the movement. And there's the little reading plan as we're going to work through the book of Acts. We've actually worked through the first two chapters this morning. We didn't hit every verse. And so your job, if you choose your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to read Acts 1-4 through 4 over the course of this week. I want to encourage you, open up the Bible for yourself. You don't have to come and wait for me to read it to you and explain it to you. You don't have to do that. People like William Tyndale, they gave their lives so that we could have access to the Word of God. Open it up. What you're going to is a story. And you're part of the story. 
It'd be neat to read how this movement started and what happened in that first century as the message went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. So I'd encourage you to begin reading that. Secondly, would you consider your commitment as part of this church? Just consider. I want you to consider how you might have bought into the idea of church is a location rather than church is a congregation, an assembly, a gathering. Consider, what's been my framework? Be willing to admit, you know, I've kind of looked at church as an impersonal location. And the truth is, it's a lot easier to just see church as a location because this way I simply need to go to church. I don't need to accept responsibility. It allows us to just defer responsibility to the pastors, to the staff, to not take any part for it not to cost us anything, for not to sacrifice our time, our resources to advance this movement. But if you decide, you know, church is about a gathering that I've decided to be part of, and that requires that all of us are part of every answer to every problem that comes up in church life. All of us are pro- part of advancing this movement. The third next step you might consider taking is just pray. Pray that God would use your life to advance this movement. You're here because of these people in this book, in the stories written in the book of Acts. You're here because they were courageous enough to be witnesses. They decided to hunker down. God probably would have used someone else. But, you know, we want to be used by God here. We want God to use us. If you'll sign up and just be like, you know what, I want, I want to be part of advancing this movement, then somewhere down the line, there will be people sitting in these chairs, maybe five years, ten years down the road, maybe here, maybe at a different location if we're not here anymore. Because you decided to be part of the movement. You decided to invest yourself personally in this. And their story will be connected to your story, just as our story is connected to the story of these people on opening day of the church. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your church. Thank you for this movement that has taken place, God, that you've allowed us to be part of. We are so thrilled, God, that God, that we have a new year ahead. And with New Year's allows us to just rethink what we're doing, what we're a part of. God, I pray that for many of us here, we would reevaluate our understanding of church, what that means, what it's supposed to mean. God, how you'd want us to be involved. Lord, We thank you for that. I pray for those that have not yet connected with you. Lord, I pray that they would today or very soon, God, connect with you, the living God who became like one of us so that we could know you now and forever. I pray you'd move people, God, into a real relationship with you. And for those of us who know you, I pray that you'd move us into a a deeper, a sweeter, a more vibrant and active relationship with you, God. And I pray, God, as we give back to you through our offering, Lord, I pray that our offering would be truly responsive how you've captured our lives, Lord. You're worthy of everything, God. So, Lord, may our offerings be acceptable to you, God, a true reflection. And, God, we just we commit this day to you, this week ahead. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, our ushers are going to come around. and.